The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. So the first thing we'll do tonight is look into the life of Charles Dickens, and that will be through uh, three or four little excerpts from Claire Tomalin's wonderful biography of Dickens that came out about 10 years ago. Uh, it was so good, actually. I listened to the audiobook of, uh, of the biography. It was so good that I went looking for her other books, and I noticed that she's published biographies of Jane Austen, Thomas Hardy and the great uh, diarist Samuel Pepys, who lived through the Great Fire and the Plague of London in the uh, 1660s. And based on her biography of Dickens, I wouldn't hesitate to go to any of those books as well. And since she is a biographer and seems to be quite a good one, it made me look into her life. And it seems that uh, Tomalin was, if I'm remembering correctly, was planning on doing biographies for a, quite a long time. Um, but her husband died in the early 70s, which prompted her to uh, spend the next, I think, 20 years or 15 or 20 years or so, uh, mainly focusing on journalism. And only then, only uh, after waiting quite a bit, did she finally jump into full-time biography writing. And, I'll th and I think that you'll get a great sense of what she's able to do with what I'm about to read. Uh, this first excerpt comes from the chapters devoted to 1837 to 1839. Let's get uh, Dickens' dates down first, though, shouldn't we? Uh, Dickens lived from 1812 to 1870. So this comes from very early in Dickens' career as his first great fame is upon him. And uh, this will give a great sense of the of just what he was able to do from the start. I'll just read it. Uh, this is incredible. It says, uh, For Charles Dickens, everything had to fall in place behind his work schedule, driven as he was to keep up with the monthly installments of the Pickwick Papers for the publishers Chapman and Hall, and also, at the same time, preparing to embark on a new novel for another publisher. Uh, this is the novel Oliver Twist, which was also scheduled to appear in monthly numbers starting in February in a magazine called The Miscellany. So as many people know, uh, Dickens found his fame and found his form uh, through publishing his novels serially. Um, I'm pretty sure that all of his novels once... Uh, once he was discovered and once he got fame almost immediately, were published in this way. 
at least all of his great uh, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred page novels were all published in this way. So early on, he is already publishing the Pickwick Papers in one magazine, one newspaper, and he is about to also uh, begin writing Oliver Twist for another magazine. So he'll be writing both books at the same time, and they will be published month to month. So this is how he does it. Uh, the two serial stories would be running simultaneously for 10 months, and Dickens would have to work like a juggler to keep both spinning. He said later that he w was warned against serial publications. Quote, my friends told me it was a low, cheap form of publication by which I should ruin all my rising hopes, end quote. But whoever these friends were, he triumphantly proved them wrong, and readers were as pleased with the pathos and the horror of Oliver Twist as they were with the comedy of the Pickwick Papers. Managing this double feat was an unprecedented and amazing achievement. Everything had to be planned in his head in advance. Remember, he's not actually writing the entire book and then giving drips and drabs of it serially for 10 months. He is writing it month to month, so he has to keep it all in his head where he's going. Uh, the Pickwick Papers had started as a series of loosely rambling episodes, but Dickens was now introducing plot with Pickwick the main character accused of breach of promise, the dealings with lawyers, the trial, and his imprisonment, all of which demanded more care in setting up each number. And Oliver Twist was tightly plotted and shaped from the very start. There was no going back to change or adjust once a number was printed. Everything had to be right the first time. How different this was from the way most great novelists work which allow themselves, which uh, allow them to time to reconsider, change their minds, to go back, to cancel, or to rewrite. But no, for Dickens, each number of the Pickwick Papers and Oliver Twist consisted of about 7,500 words. And in theory, he simply divided every month, allotting a fortnight to each new section of each book. In practice, this did not always work out as he hoped, and although he sometimes got ahead, there were many months when he only just managed to get his copy to the printer in time, but he always did. I mean, that is incredible. 75 coherent, not just 7,500 words spilled out that he can fix up later. Uh, 7,500 coherent, plotted, good words uh, every month for two separate novels for 10 straight months. Uh, he uh, he wrote in a small hand with a quill pen and a black iron gall ink at this stage. Later, he favored a bright blue ink. On rough sheets of gray, white, or bluish paper, measuring about nine by seven and a half inches, that he would fold and then tear in half before starting to write. He called these sheets slips. And for Oliver Twist, he spaced the lines quite widely fitting about 25 lines on each sheet of paper, where later he could cram up to 45. Something like 95 slips made up one monthly number, and in the course of a day, he might produce 11 or 12 slips, 
and if pushed, he could produce up to 20. And that's incredible. Um, I can't imagine being able to do that. But I'm reminded that one of my great favorites, the biographer and historian Peter Ackroyd, has also published uh, a much longer biography of Dickens that I've never actually seen. Um, but it reminds me of what Ackroyd has to say about Shakespeare. And I think the comparisons of Dickens and Shakespeare are always very apt. What Ackroyd comes around to saying is that what matters most in Shakespeare, and I think this stands for Dickens too, what matters most is energy. It doesn't matter if the plot is borrowed from, uh, from a cheap story from some strange place. It doesn't matter if the plot is borrowed from, quote, uh, a higher source like Ovid or Plutarch. Uh, it doesn't matter if the story is believable or not. It doesn't matter if there are digressions where Shakespeare is just being Shakespeare and showing off what he can do with words. It doesn't matter if there's too much or too little comedy and suddenly there's tragedy. It doesn't matter if it's too depressing. It doesn't matter if it's too happy. It doesn't matter even sometimes if it's completely confounding or even at times boring. Uh, what matters is energy. And if you have the energy, if you find the energy, if you have the energy of the story behind you and you can convert that into writing, um, you can go anywhere. You can uh, have people believe anything and they can go along with anything. I think of all the wasted time, at least in, in, in my memory, of, um, of what would we say? Uh, in creative writing classes of people reading a story and saying, well, that's not realistic, or that's not what someone would actually say, or this is not believable. Um, what, what seems to be a great mark of success has nothing to do with how realistic or believable uh, anything is. That's not how someone would really talk. Uh, this conversation would not go on quite so long um, in a in real life, etc., etc. What seems to be the key to everything is energy, at least for someone like Dickens, at least for someone like Shakespeare, who was able to, uh, who were able to do these things. Maybe this is merely the gift of the uh, of someone who can produce as much as both Shakespeare and Dickens did. Maybe the rest of us, the rest of us mortals are not able to do a thing like that. And so we have to fall back on what is realistic and what is believable. But Dickens and Shakespeare certainly don't seem to have, don't seem to have uh, needed to do any such thing. Um, and here we go to a, a chapter from about 10 years later, focusing on the years 1848 to 1849. And this is very nice because one of my favorite books one of my wife's favorite books, and one of our favorite movies, actually, is the 2011 adaptation of this book. Uh, that is Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. And this is the time that uh, Dickens is writing David Copperfield. And listen to how uh, Jane Eyre is brought into this. Uh, Claire Tomlin says this, uh, David Copperfield was Dickens' first book to be narrated 
in the first person. It was also only the second novel to give a voice to a child who is taken seriously as a narrator. Only two years before he started to write David Copperfield, a great stir was caused by Jane Eyre, which opens with a child's narrative of cruel usage by her guardians and at school. Published under a male pseudonym, it was soon revealed to be the work of an unknown Yorkshire woman, Charlotte Bronte. As far as is known, uh, Charles Dickens never read Jane Eyre. He makes no reference to it in any surviving letters. But his friend Forrester would certainly have read the book, and it was he who suggested the use of a first-person narrative to Dickens, saying, A suggestion that he should write it in the first person, by way of change, had been thrown out by me, which he took at once very gravely, and this with other things, though as yet not dreaming of any public use of his own personal and private recollections, he conspired to bring about that resolve. That two writers should have, within a few years, made the voice of an ill-used child central to a novel is a remarkable coincidence. To Charlotte Bronte the idea had come spontaneously, and if Dickens was influenced by her, either directly or indirectly through Forrester, it was a happy cross-fertilization between two great writers. There is little resemblance beyond this between the two books, the tone of her early chapters being passionate and angry, and of Dickens's being sorrowful and almost elegiac, culminating in the child David Copperfield being shown his mother dead with his baby brother in her arms, and seeing her in his mind as the mother of his own infancy, and the little creature as himself, quote, hushed forever on her bosom. For Dickens, the change to a first-person narrative was also liberating and enriching, where Oliver Twist and Nell and even Paul Dombey were the brilliant products of high artifice, David Copperfield is a fully imagined and living child. And that's a wonderful passage. I was so happy when I heard that on the audiobook. Uh, we're going forward to the chapter dealing with 1859 and 18, between 1859 and 1861. Dickens is getting older and now we're getting into uh, all the regrets he's had over his marriage, all the regrets he's had over just how many children uh, he and his wife have had. And I think by this time he is uh, going off or or becoming obsessed with the, the woman who became his mistress late in life. And this is an amazing meeting that happens here, and I will just read it. This is what Claire Tomalin says. In 1862, the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, an admirer of Dickens' work, who had read the Pickwick Papers and David Copperfield while he was in prison. Imagine being Dick Dostoevsky in prison and reading David Copperfield in the Pickwick Papers. Um, he came to London, Dostoevsky did, and visited Dickens at his home at Wellington Street. Years later, Dostoevsky wrote in a letter to a friend a remarkable account of what Dickens said in the course of their conversations about writing, and Dostoevsky introduced Dickens' words uh, with his own. And this is an excerpt from that letter that Dostoevsky wrote. This is wonderful to suddenly have Dostoevsky uh, thrown into the mix here. Dostoevsky says this, 
uh, the person that he, the writer, sees most of, most often, actually every day, is himself. When it comes to a question of why a man does something else, it's the author's own actions which make him understand, or fail to understand, the source of human action. And so Dickens told me, Dostoevsky says, Dickens told me the same thing when I met him at the office of his magazine in 1862. He told me that all the good people in his novels, Little Nell and even the Holy Simpletons, like Barnaby Rudge, are what he wanted to have been himself, and that his villains were what he actually was, or rather what he found himself to be, his cruelty, his attacks of causeless enmity towards those who were helpless and looked to him for comfort, his shrinking from those whom he ought to love, being used up in what he wrote. There were two people in him, Dickens told me, one who feels as he ought to feel, and one who feels the opposite. From the one who feels the opposite, I make my evil characters. From the one who feels as a man ought to feel, I try to live my life. And only two people, I asked. And wow, uh, that's what a, what a passage. Um, but just read that sentence again. Uh, he told me that all the good, simple people in his novels, Little Nell and even the holy simpletons like Barnaby Rudge, are what he wanted to have been, what he wanted himself to be, and that his villains were what he actually was, or rather what he found in himself, his cruelty, his attacks of causeless enmity towards those who were helpless and looked to him for comfort, and so on. And Claire Tomlin says this is, this is an amazing report. And if Dostoevsky remembered correctly, it must be Charles Dickens' most profound statement about his inner life and his awareness of his own cruelty and bad behavior. It is as though with Dostoevsky, Dickens could drop the appearance of perfect virtue that he felt he had to keep up before the English public. It also suggests that he was aware of drawing his evil characters from a part of himself that he disapproved of and yet could not control. And isn't that something? Isn't that something? Uh, this last passage I will read from comes even closer to the end of his life. This is a chapter dealing with 1866 to 1868. And this is when Dickens is in America on a reading tour. And um, only Dickens would, would have this situation. Uh, this is wonderful. Uh, the day after his reading in Portland, a 12-year-old girl who had not been able to attend and who happened to be traveling on the same train contrived to slip into an empty seat next to him. She was a spirited child and soon engaged him in conversation. She told him she had read almost all his books, some of them six times, adding, Of course, I do skip some of the very dull parts once in a while. Not the short, dull parts, but the long ones. Dickens found her irresistible, pressed her on which were the dull bits, and made notes of what she said, laughing all the time. They held hands, and he put his arm round her waist, and she gazed at his face, quote, deeply lined, 
with sparkling eyes and an amused, waggish smile that curled the corners of his mouth under his grizzled mustache." She told him that David Copperfield was your favorite, and he said it was his, too. He asked her if she had minded missing his reading very much. In telling him how much she had, tears came into her eyes, and to her astonishment she saw that tears were hid in his eyes, too. Her flattery enchanted him, and they talked all the way to Boston, where she remembered her mother was somewhere else on the train, and Dickens went with her to find her and introduce himself. The child's name was Kate Douglas Wiggin, and Dickens and Kate Wiggin walked hand in hand along the platform as far as the carriage sent to meet him before saying goodbye. This was the same year that Louisa May Alcott published Little Women, the novel that established New England girls as modern heroines, and Kate Wiggin was in the same mold. She grew up to become a successful writer herself, produced her own bestseller called Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, and in the year 1912 she published her account of her meeting with Charles Dickens. So that's just 20 minutes with Charles Dickens, and now let's see who else we are going to meet with tonight. So let's look now at the Canadian short story writer Alice Munro. She was born in 1931, and you'll remember that in 2013 she won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Uh, she provides a really nice introduction to her selected stories, and I just want to read a few passages from that. And this describes uh, how she came to write short stories. She says this, I did not choose to write short stories. I hoped to write novels. When you are responsible for running a house and taking care of small children, particularly in the days before disposable diapers or ubiquitous automatic washing machines, it's hard to arrange for large chunks of time. A child's illness, relatives coming to stay, a pileup of unavoidable household jobs, can all swallow a work in progress as surely as a power failure used to destroy a piece of work in the computer. You are better to stick with something you can keep in mind and hope to do in a few weeks or a couple of months at most. I know that there are lots of women who have written novels in the midst of domestic challenges, just as there are men and women who have written them after coming home at night from exhausting jobs. And the version I always hear is, well, you know, just get up at five in the morning before everybody else wakes up, uh, before you have to catch the train or the subway or uh, whatever it is. Um, but Alice Monroe says, uh, that's why I thought I could do it too, but I couldn't. I took to writing in frantic spurts, juggling my life around until I could get a story done and then catching up on other responsibilities. So I got into the habit of writing short stories. And it seems important that she was able to realize 
what might at first appear to be a limitation or a failure, and she turned it into something that was obviously a strength. That's why I thought I could do it too, but I couldn't. And then she realizes what she could do. And you sort of realize then that what you could do might actually be what you ought to have been doing the entire time. She says, in later years, my short stories have not been so short. They've grown longer and in a way more disjointed and demanding and peculiar. I didn't choose for that to happen either. The only choice I make is to write about what interests me in a way that interests me, that gives me pleasure. It may not look like pleasure because the difficulties can make me morose and distracted, but that's what it is, a pleasure of telling the story I mean to tell as wholly as I can tell it, of finding out, in fact, what the story is by working around the different ways of telling it. Generally speaking, these don't seem to be very straightforward ways, but I think they're necessary. And she says, the reason that I write so often about the country to the east of Lake Huron is just that I love it. And uh, that's a very good reason. I love it. It means something to me that no other country can, no matter how important historically that other countries may be, how beautiful or how lively and interesting. I am intoxicated by this particular landscape, by the almost flat fields, the swamps, the hardwood bush lots, by the continental climate with its extravagant winters. I am at home with the brick houses, the falling down barns, the occasional farms that have swimming pools and airplanes, the trailer parks, the burdensome old churches, Walmart, and Cana Canadian Tire. I speak the language. And as I've said many times on this podcast, when I rattle off a list of favorite authors, favorite poems, or favorite musicians, whatever it is, I always try to add the caveat in there that the point is not to is not for someone else out there to follow my list, but it's to prompt you to find your own list. There would be no reason for someone like me, I don't think, to take what Alice Munro just said and decide that I, too, want to write about the place where she lives. The point is that she discovered that the place that she should write about is her own backyard, is the place she is most familiar with, the place that she actually says that she loves. I don't think I've loved any place that I've ever lived, but you can tell that Alice Monroe means it when she says, I just love it and I want to write about it. Uh, many of my short stories these days take place in a sort of parallel universe version of the suburb of Pittsburgh that I live in, but if someone asked me why, I certainly wouldn't say it's because I love it. I would just say because it's familiar. I don't even know that I speak the language. I'm just here to listen to the language, and it's the language that I am around most of all. So it's nice to see someone come around and say something like that. Um, in the next paragraph, she tells you how she got to that point. Uh, many writers uh, begin, fiction writers begin wanting to write the novels that they most admire, or wanting to write about a place, 
or a time that they don't live in. And Alice Munro was no different. This is what she says. When I first thought about what I would write, I set my stories, they were novels then, in special countries derived from fiction and then obsessively organized and colored by my imagination. When I was 11 or 12, I had worked out, mostly in my walks to and from school, an adventure narrative inspired mostly by The Last of the Mohicans and by the true story of a 14-year-old heroine who held her family farm against the Iroquois near Montreal in 1692. The devouring woods, the bears and the Indians, the perilous fields outside the Palisades, all to be pushed aside and obliterated so that I have only now retrieved it, when a couple of years later I came across Wuthering Heights. Its long shadow fell over all the remaining years of my adolescence, and I carried in my head a whole demonic tragedy in which people were riven by love and blasted by curses and died young, all in a landscape of windy moors inserted into Huron County. So in this case, she is still writing uh, about Huron County. She's just bringing the Bronte sisters into it, and it doesn't quite fit. Uh, she says, I didn't give up on the novel until I went to college, but during the time that I carried it, there was a disturbance. Something happened that had to do with writing, but in a way that I could not understand. Now, talking to anyone else, maybe a filmmaker or... I don't know, a doctor or anyone else you can think of, they say, uh, but during the time that I was trying to do this one thing, there was a disturbance. You almost think of, well, many things come to mind, but for a writer, for a writer of Alice Munro's, uh, with the focus that she has, listen to what this disturbance was. She says, I was standing at a window in the library in the town hall. Our town was the only one in the county that had refused a Carnegie library, not wishing to have to maintain such a building and forgo the taxes on the property. I was around 15 years old. I had finished picking out my books, and I was just at the window waiting. Perhaps I was waiting for a friend or for a ride home. I lived a mile or so west of town. Snow was falling straight down in the gentle meditative way that it often seems to fall in town between the buildings. That didn't mean that once I left, uh, that didn't mean that once I left the shelter of town on my westward walk home, I would not be facing into a whirlwind of snow whipped off the tops of the drifts or a primal blast coming across Lake Huron and Lake Michigan, right out of the freezing heart of the continent. Snow falling straight down, the window looked out on the town way scales and on a high board fence beyond. A corner of the town armories came into view, and like all armories, it was a thick-walled, scowling building of red brick. A team of horses pulling a sleigh was moving onto the scales. The sleigh was piled high with sacks of grain. The man who was driving the team had a winter cap pulled down on his head, 
fur-lined flaps over his ears. The horses were heavy workhorses, still used then on some farms. In a few years, such horses would have vanished, but the farmer would be taking the grain to the chopping mill. He would get a slip from the scales operator stating the total weight. The net weight would be arrived at by subtracting the weight of the empty sleigh. And there was some mud tracked onto the snow around the scales, a scattering of hay and grain from other loads, a fresh mound of horse manure on which the snow immediately melted. And she says, this description makes the scene seem as if it was waiting to be painted and hung on the wall to be admired by somebody who has probably never bagged grain. The patient horses with their nobly rounded rumps, the humped figure of the driver, the coarse fabric of the sacks, the snow conferring dignity and peace. I didn't see it framed and removed in that way. I saw it alive and potent, and it gave me something like a blow to the chest. What does this mean? What can be discovered about it? What is the rest of the story? The man and the horses are not symbolic or picturesque. They are moving through a story which is hidden, and now, for a moment, carelessly revealed. How can you get your finger on it, she asks. How can you get your finger on it and feel that life beating? It was more a torment than a comfort to think about this, because I couldn't get a hold of it at all. I went back to stringing out my secret and gradually less satisfying novel. And again, the point of a revelation like that isn't to isn't for all of us out there to go and find a version of that scene and to perhaps imagine us having the revelation or whatever whatever it might be. It is to wonder what it is outside of your library window, what it is outside of your window right now that could possibly be the equivalent to this of suddenly realizing that the things that you see every day are the subject of poetry or of art or the, the, the comfort of representation, the thing that is very easily uh, cheapened or turned into cliche these days, but at its heart, I think, is a real thing. What does it mean to uh, in the sense of someone like Alice Monroe, who's able to do it herself, what does it mean not just to see yourself and your surroundings represented in a work of art, but what is it for you as a creator to, to make that representation yourself, to be the one who does it, to be the one who says, um, I will take the area east of Lake Huron and I will make it into a setting for fiction as rich as, you know, Dickens, London, or whatever it is. Um, what does it mean to be able to do that? And how disturbing is it when you first realize that maybe that is the focus that you should have? Uh, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing that she, that she says, what does this mean? What can be discovered about it? What is the rest of the story? Um, what is our equivalent, what, what childhood memory is as vivid as that for us? What, 
what uh, what memory from being 15 years old at the library is as vivid as that. Actually, I can remember my equivalent of what it was. It would have been when I was, this would have been the summer after my freshman year in college when I was working two jobs, sometimes back to back, where I would work overnight at a gas station, sleep for a few hours, maybe until noon, and then work like two to 10 at a grocery store. And the combination of just having uh, been dumped of uh, my first real uh, falling in love relationship ending and working these jobs that totally messed with my sleep. Um, I was in a very strange place, but uh, in a very suffering place, I guess you would say. I mean, you, you couldn't really help it, how it happened, but uh, it made a great deal of sense all of, all of a sudden to uh, go to Borders one night and find a book of Edward Hopper's paintings and to go to the Eaton Park nearby and find Hopper's painting of the gas station, the mobile gas station that's on the right side of the painting, all lit up, um, and on the left side is nature and woods and grass and trees, and the two scenes are cut in half by a road. And suddenly, the stuff that Joyce had told me, the stuff that I think I'd even seen a little bit maybe in William Carlos Williams, suddenly, you know, went off like a flashbulb as I was working at a gas station. I would, I would not have thought to set anything of mine at a gas station, but uh, that painting was a revelation to me in that sense. And I think it is still the background to my computer right now. Let's see what else Alice Monroe has to say. She says, uh, towards the end of her introduction, uh, she's talking about writing the beginnings of her stories, and now she's going to talk about writing the end of her stories. She says, endings are another matter. When I shaped the story in my head, before starting to put it on paper, it has, of course, an ending. Often, this ending will stay in place right through the first draft. Sometimes it stays in place for good, sometimes not. The story in the first draft has to be put on rough, but adequate close. It is, quote, finished, and might be thought to need no more than a lot of technical adjustments, some tightening here and expanding there, and the slipping in of some telling dialogue and chopping away of flabby modifiers. It's then, in fact, that the story is in the greatest danger of losing its life, of appearing so hopelessly misbegotten that my only relief comes from abandoning it it doesn't do enough. It does what I intended. But it turns out that my intention was all wrong. Quite often I decide to give up on it. And this was the point at which, in my early days as a writer, I did just chuck everything out and get started on something absolutely new. And now that the story is free from my controlling hand, a change in direction may occur. It can't ever be sure, I can't ever be sure this will happen, and there are bad times, though I should be used to them. I'm no good at letting go. I am thrifty and tenacious now, no spendthrift and addict of fresh starts as in my youth. I go around glum and preoccupied, trying to think of ways to fix the problem. 
and usually the right way pops up in the middle of this of this part of the process a big relief then she says renewed energy resurrection except that it isn't the right way maybe a way to the right way now i write pages and pages that i will have to discard new angles are introduced minor characters brought center stage lively and satisfying scenes are written and it's all a mistake out they go but by this time i'm on the track there's no backing out i know so much more than i did i know what i want to happen and where i want to end up and i just have to keep trying till i find the best way of getting there it's interesting she seems to suggest that she knows that she's writing all these scenes and introducing minor characters knowing that they will be deleted and that they are mistakes but she does them anyway to just sort of get the the bottom of the iceberg in her mind so that uh, as long as she knows that the readers don't necessarily need to know all of those details but her knowing it affects how she writes the story itself and it makes it much richer for the reader i think what the the irish short story writer william trevor has said much the same thing that even if you end up even if the writer ends up cutting out pages and pages and pages of detail and backstory and exposition uh, just because the writer still has that in mind just because the writer still knows that that is the backstory it affects how you write the story that is actually published and it improves it somehow and one last little paragraph here i wrote an essay several years ago for my friend john metcalf in which I said something that got a surprised reaction from readers, and their surprise surprised me. I said that I don't always, or even usually, read stories from the beginning to end. I start anywhere and proceed in either direction, so it appears that I am not reading, at least in an efficient way, to find out what happens. I do find out, and I am interested in finding out, but there is much more to the experience a story is not like a road to follow i said it's more like a house you go inside and stay there for a while wandering back and forth and settling where you like and discovering how the room and corridors all relate to each other how the world outside is altered by being viewed from these windows and you the visitor the reader are altered as well by being in this enclosed space whether it is ample and easy or full of crooked turns or sparsely or opulently furnished you can go back again and again and the house the story always contains more than you saw the last time it has also a sturdy sense of itself of being built out of its own necessity not just to shelter or beguile you to deliver a story like that durable and freestanding is what I'm always hoping for. And I suppose that is the answer in one way to the literary story compared to the genre story, how it should be a mixture of both. Because if it is only about plot and uh, convention, um, once the surprise of the plot is gone, uh, there may not be a reason to reread it. But at the same time, if there isn't a plot, if there isn't convention, if there isn't something usual to follow, 
the other parts, the parts that are not just a shelter or bagalyu, may also not be of interest and worth following either. So let me just close reading one more sentence again, over again, from Alice Munro, because I love it so much. The description of her seeing the guy on the horse. I saw it alive and potent, she says about the scene. It's not a painting. It's not something intellectual. I saw it alive and potent, and it gave me something like a blow to the chest. What does this mean? What can be discovered about it? What is the rest of the story? The man and the horses are not symbolic or picturesque. They are moving through a story which is hidden, and now, for a moment, carelessly revealed. How can you get your finger on it? Feel that life beating. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.